Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 16 the Great Revival. Two men sat early the next morning, in a tent with a pot of coffee and a breakfast of strips of bacon between them. One was elderly, calm and grave, and his face was well known to the army. The other was youngish, slight, dark and also calm, and the soldiers were not familiar with his face. They were General Lee and Mr. Sefton. The secretary had arrived from Richmond just before the dawn with messages of importance, and none could tell them with more easy grace than he. He was quite unembarrassed now as he sat in the presence of the great general, announcing the wishes of the government, wishes which lost no weight in the telling, and whether he was speaking or not, he watched the man before him with a stealthy gaze that nothing escaped. The wishes of the cabinet are clear, General Lee, he said, and I have been chosen to deliver them to you orally, lest written orders by any chance should fall into the hands of the enemy. And those wishes are that the war be carried back into the enemy's own country. It is better that he should feel its ills more heavily than we. You will recall, General, how terror spread through the North when you invaded Pennsylvania. Ah, if it had not been for Gettysburg. He paused and looked from under lowered eyelashes at the general. There had been criticism of Lee because of Gettysburg, but he never defended himself, taking upon his shoulders all the blame that might or might not be his. Now, when Mr. Sefton mentioned the name of Gettysburg in such a connection, his face showed no change. The watchful secretary could not see an eyelid quiver. "'Yes, Gettysburg was a great misfortune for us,' said the general, in his usual calm, even voice. "'Our troops did wonders there, but they did not win.' "'I scarcely need to add, general,' said the secretary, "'that the confidence of the government in you is still unlimited.' Then, making deferential excuses, Mr. Sefton left the tent, and Lee followed his retreating figure with a look of antipathy. The secretary wandered through the camp, watching everything. He had that most valuable of all qualities, the ability to read the minds of men, and now he set himself to the discovery of what these simple soldiers, the cannon food, were thinking. He did it, too, without attracting any attention to himself, by a deft question here, a suggestion there, and then more questions, always indirect, but leading in some fashion to the point. Curiously, but truly, his suggestions were not optimistic, and after he talked with a group of soldiers and passed on, the effect that he left was depressing. He, too, looked across toward the northern lines, and civilian though he was, he knew that their tremendous infolding curve was more than twice as great as that forming the lines of the South. A singular light appeared in the secretary's eyes as he noticed this, 
but he made no verbal comment, not even to himself. The secretary's steps led straight toward the house in which the wounded Colonel Harley lay, and when the voice bidding him to enter in response to his knock was feminine, he smiled slightly, entered with light step, and bowed with all the old school's courteous grace over the hand of Helen Harley. There are some women, Miss Harley, he said, who do not fear war and war's alarms. Some, Mr. Sefton, she replied. There are many in the South, I know, and there must be as many in the North. It is your generous heart that speaks, he said, and then he turned to Colonel Harley, who was claiming the attention of an old acquaintance. The two men shook hands with great warmth. Here was one who received the secretary without reserve. Miss Harley, watching, saw how her brother hung upon the words of this accomplished man of the world, how he listened with a pleased air to his praise, and how he saw in the secretary a great man and a friend. He asked Helen presently if she would not walk with him a little in the camp, and her brother seconded the idea. He was not intentionally selfish, and he loved his sister. She sits here all the time nursing me, he said, when I'm almost well, and she needs the fresh air. Take her out, Mr. Sefton, and I'll thank you if she doesn't. But she was willing to go. She was young, red blood flowed in her veins, she wished to be happy, and the world, despite this black cloud of war which hung over her part of it, was curious and interesting. She was not fond of close rooms and sick beds, so with a certain relief she walked forth by the side of the secretary. It was another of those beautiful days in May which clothed the Virginia earth in a gauze of spun silver. Nature was blooming afresh, and peace, disturbed by the vain battle of the night before, had returned to the armies. It seems to me a most extraordinary thing to behold these two armies face to face and yet doing nothing, said Helen. Wars consist of much more than battles, replied the secretary. I am learning that, she said. She looked about her with eager interest, custom not dimming to her the strange sights of an army in camp and on the eve of a great conflict. Nothing was like what she had imagined it would be. The soldiers seemed to have no fear of death. In fact, nothing, if they could be judged by their actions, was further from their thoughts. They were gay rather than sad, and apparently were enjoying life with an indifference to circumstances that was amazing. They were joined presently by Prescott, who thought it no part of his cue to avoid the secretary. Mr. Sefton received him with easy courtesy, and the three strolled on together. The secretary asked the news of the camp, and Prescott replied that the Reverend Dr. Warren, a favorite minister, was about to preach to the soldiers. "'He is worth hearing,' said Prescott. "'Dr. Warren is no ordinary man, and this is Sunday, you know.' The army like other armies, included many wild and lawless men who cherished in their hearts neither the fear of God nor the fear of man. But the South was religious, and if the march or battle did not forbid, Sunday was observed with the rites of the church. 
The great Jackson, so eager for the combat on other days, would not fight on Sunday if it could be helped. The crowd was gathering already to hear the minister, who would address them from a rude little platform built in the center of a glade. The day was so calm, so full of the May bloom, that Helen felt its peace steal over her. And for the moment, there was no war. This was not an army, but just a great camp meeting in the woods, such as the South often had, and still has. The soldiers were gathered already to the number of many thousands, some sitting on stumps and logs, and others lying on the ground. All were quiet, inspired with respect for the man and his cloth. Let us sit here and listen, said Prescott, and the three, sitting on a convenient log, waited. Dr. Warren, for he was an M.A. and a Ph.D. of a great American university, and had taken degrees at another in Germany, ascended his rude forest pulpit. He was then about forty years of age, tall, thin, with straight black hair, slightly long, and with angular but intellectual features. A good man, thought Helen, and she was deeply impressed by his air of authority and the respect that he so evidently inspired. He spoke to them as to soldiers of the cross, and he made his appeal directly to their hearts and minds, never to their passions. He did not inquire into the causes of the conflict in which they were engaged. He had no criticism for the men on the other side. He seemed, rather, to include them in his address. He said it was a great war, marked by many terrible battles, as it would be marked by many more, and he besought them so to bear themselves, that whatever the issue, none could say that he had not done his duty as he saw it. And whether they fell in battle or not, that would be the great comfort to those who were at home awaiting their return. Prescott noticed many general officers in the crowd, listening as attentively as the soldiers. All sounds in the camp had died, and the speaker's clear voice rose now and penetrated far through the forest. The open air, the woods, the cannon at rest clothed the scene with a solemnity that no cathedral could have imparted. The same peace enfolded the northern army, and it required but little fancy to think that the soldiers there were listening to. It seemed at the moment an easy and natural thing for them both to lay down their arms and go home. The minister talked, too, of home, a place that few of those who heard him had seen in two years or more. But he spoke of it not to enfeeble them, rather to call another influence to their aid in this struggle of valor and endurance. Prescott saw tears rise more than once in the eyes of hardened soldiers, and he became conscious again of the power of oratory over the southern people. The North loved to read, and the South to hear speeches. That seemed to him to typify the difference in sections. The minister grew more fiery and more impassioned. His penetrating voice reached far through the woods, and around him was a ring of many thousands. Few have ever spoken to audiences so large and so singular. Of women there were not twenty, just men, and men mostly young, mere boys the majority, but with faces brown and scarred, and clothing tattered and worn, men hardened to wounds and reckless of death, men who had seen life in its wildest and most savage phases. 
But all the brown and scarred faces were upturned to the preacher, and the eyes of the soldiers, as they listened, gleamed with emotional fire. The wind moaned now and then, but none heard it. Around them the smoky campfires flared and cast a distorting light over those who heard. Prescott's mind, as he listened to the impassioned voice of the preacher and looked at the brown, wild faces of those who listened, inevitably went back to the Crusades. There was now no question of right or wrong. But he beheld in it the spirit of men stirred by their emotions and gathering a sort of superhuman fire for the last and greatest conflict, for Armageddon. Here was the great drama played against the background of earth and sky, and all the multitude were actors. The spirit of the preacher, too, was that of the crusading priest. The battlefields before them were but part of the battle of life. It was their duty to meet the foe there as bravely as they met the temptation of evil, and then he preached of the reward afterward, the heaven to come. His listeners began to see a way into a better life through such a death, and many shook with emotion. The spell was complete. The wind still moaned afar, and the fire still flared, casting their pallid light, but all followed the preacher. They saw only his deep-set burning eyes, the long pale face, and the long black hair that fell around it. They followed only his promises of death and life. He besought them to cast their sins at the feet of the Master, to confess and prepare for the great day to come. Prescott was a sober man, one who controlled his emotions, but he could not help being shaken by the scene, the like of which the world had not witnessed since the Crusades, the vast forest, the solemn sky overhead, the smoky fires below, and the fifty thousand in the shadow of immediate death who hung on the words of one man. The preacher talked of olden days, of the men who, girding themselves for the fight, fell in the glory of the Lord. Theirs was a beautiful death, he said, and forgiveness was for all who should do as they and cast away their sins. Groans began to arise from the more emotional of the soldiers. Some wept. Many now came forward and, confessing their sins, asked that prayers be said for their souls. Others followed, and then they went forward by thousands. Over them still thundered the voice of the preacher, denouncing the sin of this world and announcing the glory of the world to come. Clouds swept up the heavens, and the fires burned lower, but no one noticed. Before them flashed the livid face and the burning eyes of the preacher, and he moved them with his words as the helmsman moves a ship. Denser and denser grew the throng that knelt at his feet and begged for his prayers, and there was the sound of weeping. Then he ceased suddenly, and closing his eyes and bending his head, began to pray. Involuntarily, the fifty thousand, too, closed their eyes and bent their heads. He called them brands, snatched from the burning. He devoted their souls to God. There on their knees, they had confessed their sins, and he promised them the life everlasting. New emotions began to stir the souls of those who mourned. Death? What was that? Nothing. A mere dividing place between mortality and immortality. A mark soon passed, and nothing more. They began to feel a divine fire. 
They welcomed wounds and death, the immortal passage, and they longed for the battlefield and the privilege of dying for their country. They thought of those among their comrades who had been so fortunate as to go on before, and expected joyfully soon to see them again. Prescott looked up once, and the scene was more powerful and weird than he had ever seen before. The great throng of people stood there with heads bowed, listening to the single voice pouring out its invocation and holding them all within its sweep and spell. The preacher asked the blessing of God on everyone and finished his prayer. Then he began to sing, I found a friend in Jesus. He is everything to me. He is the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. The lily of the valley in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. He's my comfort in trouble. In sorrow he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He sang one verse alone, and then the soldiers began to join, at first by tens, then by hundreds, and then by thousands, until the grand chorus, rolling and majestic, of fifty thousand voices, swelled through all the forest. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. The faces of the soldiers were no longer sad. They were transfigured now. Joy had come after sorrow, and then forgiveness. They heard the promise. The best of all ways to prepare soldiers for battle, said a cynical voice at Prescott's elbow. It was Mr. Sefton. But it is not so intended, rejoined Prescott. Perhaps not, but it will suffice. His is what I call constructive oratory, presently continued the secretary in a low voice. You will notice that what he says is always calculated to strengthen the mind, although the soldiers themselves do not observe it. But no man could be more sincere, said Helen. I do not doubt it, replied the secretary. It is impossible for me to think that the men singing here may fall in battle in a few days, said Helen. The singing ended, and in a few minutes the soldiers were engaged in many avocations, going about the business of the day. Prescott and Mr. Sefton took Helen back to the house, and then each turned to his own task. Several officers were gathered before a campfire on the following morning, mending their clothes. They were in good humor, because Talbot was with them, and gloom rarely endured long in his presence. After all, why should the spirit of mortal be proud, said Talbot? Will it profit me more to be killed in a decent uniform than in a ragged one? Don't you want to make a respectable casualty, asked Prescott. Yes, but I don't like to work so much for it, replied Talbot. It's harder to dress well now than it is to win a battle. You can get mighty little money, and it's worth mighty little after you get it. The I promise to pay of the Confederate States of America has sunk terribly low, boys. He held up a Confederate bill and regarded it with disgust. It would take a wheelbarrow full of those to buy a decent suit of clothes, he said. Do you know the luck I had yesterday when I tried to improve my toilet? All showed interest. More than six months' pay was due me, said Talbot, and, thinking I'd buy something to wear, I went around to old Seymour, the paymaster, for an installment. See here, Seymour, I said. Can't you let me have a month's pay? 
It's been so long since I had any money that I've forgotten how it looks. I want to refresh my memory. You ought to have seen the look old Seymour put on. You'd have thought I'd asked him for the moon. Talbot, he said, you're the cheekiest youngster I've met in a long time. But the army owes me six months' pay, I said. What's that got to do with it, he asked. I'd like to know what use the soldier has for money. Then he looked me up and down, as if it wouldn't work a foot rule hard to measure me. But I begged like a good fellow, said I wanted to buy some new clothes, and I'd be satisfied if he'd let me have only a month's pay. At last he gave me the month's pay, five hundred dollars, in nice new Confederate bills, and I went to a sutler to buy the best he had in the way of raiment. I particularly wanted a nice new shirt and found one just to suit me. The price, I said to the sutler, eight hundred dollars, he answered, as if he didn't care whether I took it or not. That settled me so far as the shirt question was concerned. I'd have to wait for that until I was richer. But I'd looked through his stock and at last bought a handkerchief for two hundred dollars, two paper collars for one hundred dollars each, and I've got this hundred dollars left. Oh, I'm a bargainer. And he waved the Confederate bill aloft in triumph. I'd give this hundred dollars for a good cigar, he added, but there isn't one in the army. One of the men sang, I am busted, mother busted, gone the last unhappy check, and the infernal sutler's prices make every pocketbook a wreck. Prescott sat reading a newspaper. It was the issue of the Richmond Whig of April 30, 1864, and his eyes were on these paragraphs. That the great struggle is about to take place for the possession of Richmond is conceded on all sides. The enemy is marshalling his cohorts on the Rappahannock and the peninsula, and that a last desperate effort will be made to overrun Virginia and occupy her ancient capital is admitted by the enemy himself. What, then, becomes the duty of the people of Richmond in view of the mighty conflict at hand? It is evidently the same as that of the commander of a man of war who sails out of port to engage the foes of his flag in mortal combat. The decks are cleared for action. Non-combatants are ordered below or ashore. The supply of ammunition and food is looked to, and a short prayer uttered that heaven will favor the right and protect the land and the loved ones for whom the battle is waged. We sincerely hope and pray that the red waves of battle may not, as in 1862, roll and break and hiss against the walls of the capital and the ears of our suffering but resolute people may never again be saluted by the reports of hostile guns. But our hopes may be disappointed. The enemy may come again as he has come before, and for aught we know, the battle may be fought on these hills and in these streets. It is with a view of this possible contingency that we would urge upon our people to make all needful preparation for whatever fate betides them, and especially to give our brave and unconquerable defenders a clear deck and open field. And above all, let the living oracles of our holy religion and pious men and women of every persuasion remember that God alone giveth the victory, and that his ear is ever open to the prayer of the righteous. Prescott's thought the next morning were of Lucia Catherwood, 
who had floated away from him in a sort of haze. It seemed a long time since they parted that night in the snow, and he found himself trying to reproduce her face and the sounds of her voice. Where was she now? With that army which hung like a thundercloud on their front? He had no doubt of it. Her work would be there. He felt that they were going to meet again, and it would not be long. That day the southern breeze blew stronger and sweeter than ever. It came up from the gulf, laden with a million odors, and the little wild flowers and delicate tints of pink and purple and blue peeped up amid the shades of the forest. That night, Grant, with 130,000 men and 400 guns, crossed the Rapidan and advanced on the Army of Northern Virginia. The fiercest and bloodiest campaign recorded since history rose from the past was about to begin.